0: Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, philosophical, literary, cinematic, biblical, but today, historical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. This is the third of eight episodes in a series that will track the history of Southern men who fought in the Union Army in the Civil War. Don't call them Yankees. Specifically, I'm going to be studying the 2nd Tennessee Volunteer Infantry, United States Army, and the men who made it up, including one of my ancestors, from the formation of the regiment through its first major action in the Battle of Mill Springs. I believe that a person's life is not small and inconsequential because it is without fame. Rather, great historical events lend their greatness to the individual lives that participate in them. And those events have acquired their great historical significance through the participation of thousands of unsung individuals like my ancestor, and perhaps yours as well. In our last episode, we found our men marking time in Camp Dick Robinson, Kentucky, while their commander struggled to organize the chaos and secure supplies for his new brigade. Today, they're going to see things change. Chapter 3 George Thomas How Long Till we're Soldiers? September through October, 1861 While the men of the 2nd Tennessee and their fellows waited and talked and went through preliminary training in Bull Nelson's Camp Dick Robinson, there was a good deal of shuffling in the higher levels of command. Nelson's administration had been marked by frenetic activity, but little effectiveness along with continued clashes with the officers and politicians in charge of organizing the volunteers. The War Department in Washington decided Nelson's talents could be better used elsewhere. He was commissioned as a Brigadier General of Volunteers, he had been acting as an Adjutant General, and sent to set up a new camp near his own hometown of Maysville, Kentucky, Camp Kenton, to form another brigade there. He would go on to respectable, though not particularly distinguished, service as a division commander, even being promoted to Major General of Volunteers until he was killed a year later. Murdered, shot through the heart at point-blank range by a fellow Union general that he had openly insulted and literally slapped in the face. That general, whose unlikely name was Jefferson Davis, was convicted by court-martial but he was never punished for his crime. Instead, he actually went on to serve with some distinction and and also more controversy later in the war, commanding a division in Sherman's March to the Sea. Nelson's sizable remains were brought back to Camp Robinson for interment, but were removed to Maysville after the large flagpole that stood over his grave was cut down by unknown persons on the night of July 4, 1865. At any rate, I'm not sure if the men in Camp Dick Robinson knew when Nelson was gone, or even that he was gone. But on September 12th, they were introduced to their new commander, Brigadier General George H. Thomas. When he galloped in on horseback, accompanied by a small troop wearing his old uniform with the insignia of a cavalry colonel, everybody expected a speech like Nelson and all the other top officers and politicians gave when they came through. They didn't get one. George Thomas didn't give speeches. He gave orders. After the briefest review of the troops they had ever received, the general dismissed them, called for all regimental officers to meet him at his headquarters set up in a nearby tavern. The Tennesseans took an immediate liking to General Thomas, though not as physically impressive as General Nelson, and who else was. The stocky six-footer had a look of strength and self-possession. When he passed the new soldiers in review, his blue eyes didn't flash like Nelson's, but they grabbed hold of you, and they didn't let go until they were through sizing you up. His graying beard covered an ugly scar on his chin from the only wound he ever received in all the many battles he had fought, having been pierced by a Comanche arrow the year before. Now, this is the kind of detail the men would learn by word of mouth as information about the generals circulated among the troops. His legs were a bit short for his size, actually making him seem larger than he was. He walked stiffly, even painfully, as the result of a spinal trauma from a railroad accident suffered only a few months ago that nearly crippled him and and took him out of the war altogether. He would carry the pain of his back injury for the rest of his life, but he carried himself with dignity nonetheless. His manner of speech was not the rough-hewn drawl of Kentucky or Tennessee, but the measured accents of old Virginia. Sooner or later, the men of Camp Robinson would find out the nickname his peers had given him, Slow Trot. Though many associated the nickname with his limping gait, it was actually a name that he had gotten as a cavalry instructor at West Point. It the order that he barked out to keep the cadets from wearing out the tired old horses in needless runs became his trademark among federal officers it was a name that got attached neither fairly nor accurately to his style of command and his approach to warfare and it was one reason why his superiors often underestimated him as a general they whenever they thought of him they thought of slow trot thomas within only a few days or probably less the Tennesseans observed several differences in their new commander. They had respected General Nelson, but fearfully, being afraid to cross him, although he was highly visible in the camp and who could miss him, he was distant and unapproachable. If if you caught his attention, it was probably for a mistake, and then he'd swear at you like well, he was a navy man; he'd swear at you like a sailor, and then he'd send you to the guardhouse or whatever they had there. Nelson's idea of discipline and control was harsh. The independent-minded Tennesseans shed no tears when they heard he was gone. A veteran of the Kentucky Cavalry at Camp Dick Robinson later wrote that while Thomas, quote, was not as much seen as General Nelson, his administration was agreeably felt. Thomas had a confident sense of his own authority, and he didn't feel a need to put it on parade whenever he went out. The men felt comfortable with him, and they liked it when he came around them. At the same time, he didn't joke or converse with the men. He kept his relationships with them cordial, but formal. He showed a superior officer's sincere respect for his men and required due respect from them. His voice didn't boom like Nelson's, although you knew he could raise it if he needed to. He had the fierce visage of a warrior. His right eye had a little squint as if he were always aiming a loaded weapon. If provoked, he could give a withering look that dressed a soldier down quicker than a cussing, but he would also praise you if he saw you doing a good job and it made you feel ten feet tall. Above all, though, Thomas looked and acted like an army man. Now, General Nelson and their own General Carter, they were doubtless good and able officers, but they were Navy men. They were sailors, not soldiers. And the Tennessee boys may not have been able to put their finger on the difference but they felt it and they knew it. Nelson and Carter had to digest general army principles from their navy training and they were always adapting their methods and orders in a trial and error fashion. And it seemed that they had as much to learn about the infantry as the new inductees. George Thomas was a sharp contrast. A West Point graduate, Mexican War veteran, career officer, and Indian fighter. He walked in with a calm confidence that instantly affected the whole camp right away he began issuing new orders that seemed to cover just about everything to everyone from the volunteer officers down to the privates his orders simply made sense and whether they liked them or not they knew the general wasn't going to alter them tomorrow no one was confused about his expectations the first day thomas showed up there was a change in the camp and even the marching drills had a new spirit before long they'd be affectionately referring to their general as Pap Thomas. The nickname spoke of their general as a father figure, someone they believed would bring discipline, but also take care of them. George Thomas came to this post by appointment from General Robert Anderson, who is currently over this department. Now, it's not known whether Anderson had wanted Nelson out, but he clearly wanted Thomas in. He had already personally appealed to Lincoln for Thomas's promotion to Brigadier General, well, Lincoln had been burned by the defections to the Confederacy of other Virginians, notably Robert E. Lee, and was he was leery of elevating another one. Thomas had served in Texas both under Lee and under Confederate General Albert Sidney Johnston, and Anderson had to work hard to sell Lincoln on the idea that he could be trusted. Let the Virginian wait, he said. Anderson, however, considered Thomas, who had an unbroken, meritorious service in both artillery and cavalry, one of the best officers in the Army. It didn't hurt Thomas's case that, in July skirmishes in the Shenandoah Valley, he had been both valiant and effective, and had given Thomas J. Jackson, Lee's soon-to-be outstanding lieutenant, an early and rare taste of defeat. Anderson's insistent recommendation of Thomas, boosted by an endorsement from Anderson's protege and Thomas's West Point classmate, William Tecumseh Sherman, finally won Lincoln over. On August 17th, Thomas was promoted to Brigadier General of Volunteers. Most officers in the regular army considered a volunteer commission inferior, and some, early on, declined the advancement in rank since they were going to have to surrender it after the mustering out of the volunteers from service. Thomas accepted it gladly, and eventually rose, at last, to the rank of Major General of Volunteers, the rank by which he would eventually command the Army of the Cumberland. At that time, while he was still Major General of Volunteers, he was also promoted to the permanent rank of Brigadier General in the Army, which he held concurrently with his command rank. And finally, at the end of the war, Thomas was eventually granted a regular commission as Major General of the United States Army. On August 26th, he received orders to report to Anderson in Cincinnati, but he was given a brief furlough to visit his wife in Connecticut. On September 1st, Anderson quietly relocated from Cincinnati to Louisville. Thomas arrived there on September 6th, in time to fill the vacancy left by Nelson's departure. The following day, Anderson transferred his headquarters and staff to the Kentucky capital of Frankfort, where he appeared before the legislature to a standing ovation. Robert Anderson had just won a strategic game of political chicken, having timed his play masterfully. It was a move that was of great significance for the Tennessee Volunteers, for if his timing was off, it could have quenched all their hopes before they even had a chance. Crisis in Kentucky In the summer of eighteen sixty-one, Kentucky was a seesaw, and no one really knew for sure how it would tip. Someone has said that while its heart was in the South, its interests were in the North. The state had been tugged, lobbied, pelted with propaganda by both North and South. The governor leaned toward secession, the legislature toward union, and the state had officially declared itself neutral in the escalating war between the states. Confederate sympathizers in Kentucky protested that having camps like Dick Robinson to arm and train volunteers for the Union was an act tantamount to sending in federal troops. That's why Anderson, although he was a Kentuckian, chose to remain personally outside the state as a U.S. Army officer, directing from afar. Now, while that decision may have hindered the effort to build up the volunteer force, it also prevented the Confederate sympathizers from having a forthright provocation to point toward. In Missouri, however, a much less circumspect Federal officer was in control. John Charles Fremont, Western commanding general and self-appointed emancipator, was about to recklessly provide that provocation by ordering Brigadier General U.S. Grant to seize Columbus, Kentucky. Before Grant could get there, though, Confederate General Leonidas Polk marched in preemptively on September 4th with a strong force. Now, let's be fair. Polk's move made military sense. But it was a political and public relations blunder of the First Order. The breach of Kentucky's vaunted neutrality set off a powder keg of stored up indignation. But all of it was directed toward the Confederacy, not the Union. It gave Anderson cover to come across the Ohio, not with an armed force, but just with his staff, to offer sympathy and assistance. On September 11th, only days after Anderson's arrival to a warm welcome, the Kentucky legislature passed a resolution demanding that Confederate troops be withdrawn, and on the 18th it authorized military force to enforce the demand. When Anderson officially entered Kentucky at the head of federal forces, it was at the invitation of the state. It was in the midst of these developments that on September 19th, the day following the, the authorization of force, Brigadier General George Thomas, having evaded an assassination attempt by Kentucky secessionists en route from Louisville, took command of Camp Dick Robinson and its volunteer regiments in waiting. Once organized, the two Tennessee regiments would be united to others from Kentucky, Indiana, and Ohio and attached to the 12th Brigade, 1st Division of the Army of the Cumberland. Federal armies were named for the principal river closest to their area of operation, which in this case was the Cumberland River. Barely had Thomas arrived at Camp Robinson than he had to deal with a brewing crisis. It was widely reported that John C. Breckinridge, the erstwhile Democratic candidate for president, and others had called for a (coughs) camp drill of the State Guard at Lexington on September 20th. This drill, it was rumored, would be the signal for a general uprising of Kentucky secessionists who aimed to seize Lexington, Frankfort, and Louisville and to overthrow the state legislature. The nervous legislature therefore urgently requested Thomas to send to Lexington a regiment quote, fully prepared for a fight. Thomas's quandary was that he really didn't have a regiment so prepared. Moreover, the political situation in Kentucky was still pretty tenuous. He had to be careful whom he sent, and there was no time to spare. Fortunately, there was at hand a regiment of Kentucky volunteers that was sufficiently organized in uniform that could march into Lexington and at least look like an army and not like a gang. Even better, it was under the leadership of District Judge Thomas E. Bramlett, now the Colonel of the 3rd Kentucky Volunteer Infantry. Thus, even now, no one could make the argument that Kentucky was being invaded by the United States. Thomas was sending Kentuckians, led by a Kentucky judge, to maintain law and order in their own state. Hopefully, their presence would be enough and they wouldn't have to fight anybody. Under orders to observe any gatherings that may take place, Bramlett marched into Lexington on the night of the 19th. He knew the key intersections and power points of the city, and he had his men in position before the sun rose. When morning came, it must have looked to the townspeople that there were armed men in blue everywhere, but they were all standing under the flag of Kentucky. The secessionists were as disquieted as the pro-union folks were comforted. The militia had nowhere to gather. The camp drill never happened. A few arrests were made, but there was no violence, no confrontation. Breckinridge and and other leaders of the would-be revolt managed to evade arrest and escape Lexington. Some days later, they showed up in Knoxville, Tennessee, which from that day became the rendezvous point of Kentucky Confederates fleeing south through the Cumberland Gap. a An ironic reverse exodus of the sort experienced by the East Tennessee Unionists. Judge Thomas E. Bramlett went on to serve as colonel of his regiment until February 27, 1863, when he resigned in order to accept President Lincoln's appointment as U.S. District Attorney for Kentucky. Later that year, he accepted a major general's commission in the U.S. Army, meanwhile campaigning for the governorship of Kentucky, which he won. Now there's no doubt that the East Tennessee men had heard the news and the rumors and wondered whether they would be the ones sent to stop the rebel uprising and no doubt some of them also had their blood up and hoped that they would be called on. In no way however were they ready for any kind of a fight. They still had a long way to go before they could stand as a combat regiment. Basic training In 1861. The farmers from Tennessee had only barely begun the learning of rudiments of soldiery how to stand at attention, salute an officer, form up in ranks, count off, and that hardest of all tricks, to step off together with the left foot. Probably they were taught up to this point by the handful of veterans in their midst. It appears, however, that their training did not begin in earnest until the arriving of General Thomas. Thomas was dismayed to find that there was no systematic training and barely enough camp organization to even get the men fed. He must have wondered what Nelson had been doing the previous month. The men were so far behind in their training that when he wrote to Sherman on September 19th, a week after assuming command, he described his still-growing collection of volunteers as still an unready mob of men. His problem was compounded by the fact that he had no aides to assist him. It would take him a couple of weeks to assemble a staff of experienced and reliable officers and non coms Until then, the entire task of organizing his army, from requisitions to paperwork to basic training, fell on his shoulders alone. In contrast to Nelson, who seemed to be everywhere in the camp, Thomas was seldom seen by the troops. He didn't have time. He began the training process with his Volunteer Officer Corps. Making the best use he could of the few veterans he had, he began directing them step by step how to command and drill their troops. Doubtless, one of the first things he'd do is teach them how to use Hardy's Manual of Arms and Tactics, teach them how to act like officers, extremely important for the volunteers, and how to give orders, and how to lead men. They themselves would have to learn the drill in order to teach it. And then he would instruct them to gather all the sergeants and train them in all the things they must learn to train their platoons and squads. And finally he oversaw their training of the troops themselves, company by company, platoon by platoon, squad by squad. Most of the time he would just observe and evaluate how the officers and sergeants did their jobs, but occasionally he might find it necessary to step in himself to show them how it's done. And then the men had the rare privilege of having their general bark at them like a drill sergeant. Now, while doing this, he was still trying to acquire, for his army, food, supplies, weapons, ammunition. Army ordnance, wagons, and animals were in high demand and scarce supply everywhere. And supplying Camp Robinson was not a high priority in the War Department. Thomas could still not procure proper uniforms for the Tennesseans, and he was concerned to get coats for the cold weather coming on. Despite the early privations, the Army of the Cumberland has been called the prototype of the modern Army. Now, how could that be? It's because of this. The standard time-honored method for training soldiers was the parade ground drill. It was the same system introduced by Varen von Steuben during the Revolutionary War. George Thomas had developed his own philosophy of training men. And he went beyond this. And he directed his men through simulated practice sorties and skirmishes in small units. He explained his philosophy succinctly in this way. He said, We are all cowards in the presence of immediate death. We can overcome that fear in war through familiarity. An example of his methods is related by uh, one of his biographers, Christopher Einhoff, who tells of an officer in an Indiana regiment that experienced Thomas's brand of preparation. His regiment had already been trained at another recruiting camp, and he thought they were fairly well prepared. And Shortly after their arrival at the camp, the men were awakened in the middle of the night by the sound of the long roll, the alarm that called men to battle. Men got up and tried to form ranks, only to find that they could not assemble quickly because they had left their clothing, weapons, and accoutrements scattered all over the camp and couldn't find them in the darkness. Many of the officers performed poorly, failing to form the men into companies or form the companies into a regimental formation. When they discovered the alarm was only a drill, the men were relieved, but they were also embarrassed by their poor performances. They worked hard to improve and responded much better in the future. Of course, all of Thomas's efforts to modernize the training and organization of his camp were within the constraints of the existing army system. The one holdover from the old army style that may have handicapped the new army's effectiveness was the primitive approach to forming its fighting units around pre-existing relationships, grouping together soldiers from the same towns and counties. This was an ancient tradition from which men in the field took comfort in strange surroundings. No one ever thought of that being a problem until the Civil War, when The use of modern weapons brought about the destruction of whole regiments, which in turn decimated whole whole communities. It was vital that the men learned how to march. Marching was a critical skill, both for efficient movement of large numbers of men on foot and for getting into fighting formation in battle. The intricate maneuvers that are practiced by contemporary drum and bugle corps Are actually stylized versions of the kind of attack and defense maneuvers used in war from the time of the first use of firearms in mass formation, and before that to the type of formation based warfare practiced in ancient times by Alexander the Great and the Roman war machine. An enormous amount of precision is required to achieve the desired results. While today's marching bands have to do it while playing instruments, yesterday's soldiers had to attain it while under enemy fire. The only way to get there is drill, drill, drill. While most of the men knew how to handle firearms, they all had to be taught the Army way. The standard round for the smooth-bore Harper's Ferry musket was the buck and ball, a thirty-seven caliber lead ball combined with two or three buckshot. Kind of a fortified shotgun. The weapon was accurate to only 50 yards, maybe 100 yards on a windless day. But used en masse, its close-range killing power was impressive. The load came in paper cartridges, along with the black powder charge. Soldiers would tear open the cartridge with their teeth, pour the powder and the lead straight down into the barrel using the paper as wadding, ram the load with the rod, prime the musket with a brass firing cap, aim the weapon, and fire. All of these steps had to be coordinated with the unit for volley fire. And they would drill in order to achieve the goal of getting off three to four rounds per minute. They practiced loading and shooting from different positions, including lying down, extremely difficult because gravity works against pouring in the powder. And drilled so thoroughly that years later as old men, they would be able to recite the procedure without hesitation or error. Along with this, They also learned the use of the bayonet, which in those days was not knife-like, as were the bayonets of the World Wars, but a long, sharpened spike, butted by a slotted ring that locked onto the end of the musket barrel. A spear, basically. A spear is a simple and primitive weapon, but to use it effectively, one must learn its techniques and drill until it becomes second nature. That, of course, is the reason for all the repetitive training, so that in the heat of battle, soldiers won't think about what they have to do, but will simply react according to their training. Alvis Hicks and his brothers would reflect on the fact that the enemy would be coming at them with bayonet, and also recoil in the horror of being stuck in the gut with one. Now, in fact, if you look at it statistically, relatively few casualties in the war were from the cold steel. The vast majority of them were inflicted by the mini ball fired from rifled muskets. In hand to hand combat, they were also more likely to be bashed in by a rifle butt than run through by, with a bayonet. But even so, the bayonet was always an effective psychological weapon to strike primal fear into the heart of the enemy. The men would also learn that the bayonet is a useful tool, though not a very efficient one, for many mundane tasks, from staking out a tent to opening cans, to grinding coffee beans. Not only did they have to learn the arts of war, they also had to learn the disciplines, procedures, and customs of living, cooking, cleaning, grooming, and socializing in an army camp. They were paid 50 cents a day, and in camp, paydays were regular and monthly once they got started. Some soldiers tried to send some of the money back home, but most of it was spent buying various things from the sutlers. Vendors of all the sundries the boys might want or need, who usually operated out of a well-stocked wagon and sold goods at inflated prices. The men also learned that one unfortunate and unavoidable by-product of gathering large numbers of men from various places together in a close environment is disease. Very soon after his arrival, Thomas had to contend with a severe outbreak of measles that swept the camp temporarily disabling hundreds and killing some. Typhoid and dysentery were also common. Medical personnel and medicines were in short supply, and there was as yet no camp surgeon or hospital. Thomas authorized sick leave for those who had a home or friends close by, which alleviated the stress on the minimal camp facilities and doubtless prevented much further spread of disease. For those who had nowhere else to recuperate, Local women gave much-needed service as nurses. Paul Groger is one of those who experienced it firsthand. He writes in his journal, On October 16th, I took sick, caused by cold and exposure, no doubt, and went to the hospital. Later records indicate he had indeed come down with the measles. We was a great deal visited by the generous ladies of that neighborhood and most cordially attended to, and by their kind treatment, I soon revived again and began to feel able to accompany my regiment. Life at Camp Dick Robinson, at this point, was not really hard or strenuous. Physical fitness was incidental to everything else and wouldn't become part of Army training until a later era. Uh, Indeed, the men were already physically fit, as testified by their endurance of the grueling trek to get to Camp Dick Robinson to begin with. The men did have to drill four hours a day, but the rest of the day they usually had to themselves. The greatest hardships related to coping with the elements, but in the early fall the weather was still relatively mild. They had to deal with insects and vermin, while the most laborious task was preparing food. They were actually well-fed and gained weight, some of them enough to be teased. You're getting fatter than a town dog. Speaking of dogs, Soldiers were not permitted to keep pets, but they often had them anyway, and dogs were the most popular. It's an easy—it's e- easy to excuse a dog's presence, you know. Gosh, Captain, we tried to run him off, but he won't go. It'd be wrong just let him starve. Besides, he keeps the varmints down. The worst part of camp life, though, was homesickness, and it got to some of the boys enough to make them go absent without leave. But in those days, there was no distinction made between A.W.L. and desertion. Those that left always came back unless unless the rebels caught them, said Jack Snow. But they still faced stout punishment. One of the most common penalties for minor offenses was to be tied to a tree for a period. The Army officially abolished flogging on August 5, 1861, before they ever signed up. But I think it would have been unlikely to be used in the Tennessee regiments, even it had not, because these men simply wouldn't stand for it. The training at Camp Robinson continued through September and into October. Thomas continued to worry that the volunteers were taking too long to become soldiers. But the ragtag regiments eventually formed the core of a division. Thomas had brought in a volunteer regiment of Kentucky Cavalry, and he finally managed to acquire enough artillery to form a small battery. He was already formulating a plan for the invasion of East Tennessee, but there were still many obstacles, and supplies were still only trickling in. On October 8th, command of the Army of the Cumberland changed at the top. Robert Anderson's already frail health had taken a beating at Fort Sumter, and now was failing under the stress of the current command. He was given an honorary promotion to the Army General Staff as he entered a semi-retirement and was replaced by his second-in-command, Brigadier General William Tecumseh Sherman. A Future Foe While the lads from Tennessee were slowly being made into an army at Camp Dick Robinson, barely 25 miles away in Lexington, the same town where Thomas had forestalled a Confederate uprising, another group of men also drilled and trained in the art of war on horseback. Their leader was a charismatic 36-year-old veteran of the Mexican War, a successful businessman whose business included the buying and selling of slaves. He was, not surprisingly, a staunch believer in the cause of Southern independence. Incensed that a federal army base had been built in the heart of his state as a station for... traders, he would later become the nemesis of the regiments that were training there. His name was John Hunt Morgan. Hundreds of miles would be trod and several battles fought before the Union men of Tennessee would chase after Morgan. Their more immediate concern was a Confederate general with whose name they were already all too familiar. Come back for our next episode when the Tennessee men encounter first fire at Camp Wildcat. You've been listening to Insight, I'm Gary Nation. Thanks for listening.